Hello everyone, it's May 2nd, 2023. So we have a small part two to our Starship launch analysis, more of a refinement of our first analysis, but we have part one of our H3 launch failure. I'm just assuming we'll do a follow-up in the future. Launch failures are never fun, but they're interesting. So let's get into it and lift off. And we've got the Tower Welcome to episode 407 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So last week we were talking about, we were, we were speculating on how long it's going to be until the next Starship launch. And mm. apparently Elon Musk thinks just a couple months with the help of some big pieces of metal uh, that you can <laughs> put over concrete surfaces in order to prevent them from exploding. So how realistic do you suppose that is? I feel like I, I probably should take this because I was the one who was like going hardest <laughs> last week um yeah i i failed to take into account that they don't necessarily need to fix the issue they just need to build another pad that can get destroyed and then you know fail early fail often with pads until either they realize that this is not a viable way to construct a pad or they decide to just accept the ablative nature of their pads that's funny that's exactly what i was thinking they're they're basically doing ablative pads which is uh yeah. well <laughs> i don't think that to... the pads yeah i don't think the pads should ablate in the way that they did uh, yeah. a couple weeks ago that doesn't seem like a good idea so they still need to make some changes i mean they, they can't just accept it just as it is that's not going to work your neighboring towns can't have even yeah. small particulates raining down on them because of your rocket launch plus i mean they have to do some pad repair right they can't just like there's basically exposed foundation, like you can see beams that are, you know, plunged down into the earth and they're just sitting there exposed to the elements and uh, more importantly, rocket exhaust. It just doesn't seem like a good idea. Like they, they, they have to make some changes, but I guess it's a temporary fix. Yeah. I mean, they, they've proven that they can go fast at the site in terms of, you know, erecting and building things. So maybe if they just shift all their focus to it, they really can pull it off in a couple months. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully. And there was talk of a rock tornado, which is an interesting way of describing the problem that happened when the engines came on. Um, I wonder why that particular phrase, like, uh, I guess it was some kind of rotation of exhaust gases or something. Do you think that's what that means? Yeah. I mean, that right. You, make it, you think of a vortex if someone says a tornado. And so I wonder if they have reason to believe that it literally, the blast hitting the pad kind of resulted in these vortices back up <laughs> reflecting back up towards the vehicle which is yeah it's it's crazy but it is what it is i'm hoping that they can launch again soon because that was fun to watch and so i just want to see it again yeah let's get that pad repaired <laughs> <laughs> in the news i guess a little bit of a starship update so uncle willie uh Gave us a pretty cool, uh, posted in our Discord, uh, some comments about historical pad damage, which I think is pretty, pretty neat. And uh, in particular, STS-124, evidently, mm -hmm. I had no idea about this, but this was one where the the shuttle was always kind of doing some serious damage to uh, the pad. I mean, they had built it, but they would have to send in the contractors to go and, I don't know, repave it and, you know, fix it up sometimes. But this was one where evidently the blast was just enough that it was able to get behind some of the bricks and launch them, heave them <laughs> through the air like projectiles, like, you know, very analogous to what we were seeing in the super heavy footage. It's interesting because it's like fluid flow is fluid flow, right? Um, mm. Like the same thing happened uh, with the Oroville Dam failure, if you guys remember about that. Mm -hmm. The the slipway crumbled, even though the, the slipway was lined with concrete. 
all it took was one little perturbation that was able to cause some turbulence and it allowed water to get underneath. And, and of course, in that case, there's, uh, erosion is really driving, uh, it is really a driving force. And in this case, it's just pressure can be the driving force, but it, it really, it's just like, you know, you, you have to consider the exact same fluid dynamics when you're building, like when you're building a bridge over water, like when you've got those pylons that go down in the water, you have to think about that. And when you're building uh, a, a rocket launch pad, like you have to think about the exact <laughs> same thing. It's, it's kind of lovely, the symmetry. Physics is physics, even when the context can be as wildly different. Yeah. So the, the reason that we bring up uh, Uncle Willie mentioning this is because last week um, I like zipped straight past the point <laughs> when I mentioned um, mm. the skydiver who encountered a rock, which like that, that is the fascinating part of that story to me is like learning how, looking at how they, they decided whether this was a big rock far away or a small rock close up. And I, I do remember that it, the conversation started uh, talking about STS-124's incident and like how Apollo 12 was involved in that. And like it's a it's a great article because there's so many things to be fascinated by, but yeah, I totally I flew right past the the whole point of posting the link, so I appreciate the the tap on the shoulder uh, that that we got. And then the real update um, comes from Elon Musk. He did a uh, discussion on Twitter Spaces, which like Twitter Spaces is a feature that really reminds me of what was Google's failed social network. Was it Google Spaces? Maybe not. Oh, yeah. What was that one called? Um, no, I think it was called Google Plus, right? Well, actually, they've they've had several, but I know that one of them was Google Plus. Isn't yeah, that one? Plus isn't the one I was thinking of. But anyway, um, Twitter Spaces has been around for a while, and it's it's funny that like a conversation was held there, and it's not persisted in the same way that tweets are. And so, the only way that us three heard about this is Michael Sheets, uh, the reporter like basically copied and pasted interesting things into actual tweets, <laughs> uh, hellhole of a website. But, uh, Musk said, yeah, that the outcome was roughly what I expected, maybe slightly exceeding my expectations, but roughly what I expected, which is that we would get clear of the pad, which doesn't feel terribly surprising. He talked about, uh, e- Elon talked about how this stack is an older design and that they have, um, a newer design ready to go. And they're kind of like, well, let's just, let's just burn this and see what happens and learn what we can and move on. Even though it's not super representative of what they're intending to fly, you know, you can still learn things, um, from your, your first crack at a problem. But what's interesting is, yeah, he confirmed that those three engines that weren't, uh, ignited at liftoff were like an intentional, an intentional choice. They, Right. Super Heavy has got 33 engines and they can lift off with 30. So they said, okay, well, we have three engines that aren't looking good. So let's just go ahead and launch without them. Now, the amount of time that this happened, it, it the, at the beginning of Musk talking, it sounds like it was a decision that they made, you know, the day before. But really, I think this was actually a computer, a computer driven decision, um, at like ignition time. 
uh, because he said the three engines didn't explode, but they were just not healthy enough to bring them to full thrust, so they were shut down. So, okay, three engines off the pad. We kind of assumed that those were likely to be damaged due to debris, and maybe, maybe not. What's really crazy is at T plus 27 seconds, um, they lost radio communication with the vehicle due to, quote, some kind of energy event and, quote, some kind of explosion happened to knock out the heat shields of engine 17, 18, 19, or 20. And so, like, that that 27-second explosion was big enough to, I guess, generate an EMP that that made enough noise on their on their frequencies. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. And then uh, Musk confirmed that they lost thrust vector control at T plus uh, 85 seconds, which is when the vehicle started to tumble. And what's really surprising, but not surprising, um, David, last week you talked about how Scott Manley in his video said it looked like the AFTS took longer than expected to to activate. And I was like, man, I don't know. Like that doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me. Uh, and Musk confirmed that, yeah, actually it took 40 seconds ish for AFTS to kick in, um, which I, I really don't think that's a good thing. And it sounds like they're actually going to have to requalify their AFTS system, which is a good thing. Like if it takes 40 seconds to, to make that decision, that absolutely needs to get requalified, figure out what happened. Uh, he gave a shout out to the structural integrity of the vehicle, how it was able to do these flips, albeit in the upper atmosphere. But I mean, really it's, it wasn't that high up. Like there still was a lot of sheer force placed on that, um, airframe and it, it held up very well. So that's cool. Yeah. Right. You could see it had kind of a, a pretty wild angle of attack at one point. Um, Oh, I, I think, I think like a sort of... 90 degree. I, I mean, it was pretty close. It flipped. Yeah. yeah it flipped all so. the way around. Yeah. And then it started. Yeah. The, the, yeah. And once it started, tumbling <laughs> so musk said that next time their expectation is to actually re-orbit, reach orbit which is interesting uh, he said that they are not planning on changing their flight profile at this time and then one of the things that we were interested in was how does this affect artemis and elon said definitely don't expect lunar starship uh i.e you know the hls uh, lander to be the longest lead item for the Artemis three mission. Mm -hmm. We will be the first thing to really be ready. He said, <laughs> um, wow, yeah. that, that's a <laughs> that's lot of confidence. confidence, but framed in the, in the way that he did saying, you know, we're not the only, we're not the only thing that can delay this mission. Honestly, isn't, I mean, that's probably your best bet, right? Is that we may be delayed, but we're not going to be the worst delay is like really, okay, f fair enough. Like, I don't know if that's a hundred percent reassuring, but like, that is a good way to approach the problem. That, that, that was my speculation last week was that there's enough problems with the rest of the Artemis program yeah. that I would not be surprised if Starship is not the limiting factor and that something else yeah. uh, is going to end up. Yeah. And then um, finally, for me, one of the things that they're going to do um, to try and mitigate uh, pad damage is just get off the pad faster. <laughs> so mm. we'll, we'll see if they can put together um, a, a set of circumstances 
that allows them to do this launch without a flame trench and to not have to rebuild their pad every time. I'm still skeptical, but we'll see. That's that's healthy skepticism there because I think that <laughs> I think ultimately a flame trench will be necessary. I don't know. I can't imagine it being any other way. Because again, if, if they plan on flying this in Florida eventually, that's something where you can't just count on. Uh, well, there's a lot of other things around the, the pad. Yeah. A lot of other launch uh, infrastructure <laughs> that you want to make sure you do not send giant chunks of concrete hurtling towards. That's a good point. Yeah. They have uh, they have neighbors. Yeah, rocket neighbors. <laughs> yeah, they can't be causing too much of a ruckus. <laughs> so that was the Starship failure analysis. Let's move on to H3 analysis. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, JAXA basically has uh, released more information on what caused the H3 to fail on its inaugural uh, flight uh, a couple months ago. And if you recall, right, this was one where they had a, a fairly expensive several hundred million dollar uh, Earth observation satellite on board that ended up in the Pacific. And this was also the one where when they launched, they had a crazy dogleg uh, south maneuver that they did that was planned and so that was really cool but yeah we're getting even though we're able to kind of track down uh, what caused the rocket to fail and not reach orbit we still don't know exactly what it is and so we'll probably have more updates uh, in the future but essentially the uh, the first stage was fine um, they reached main engine cutoff they were still on their planned trajectory uh, all was well and the real issue evidently was at the second stage and there was this term I had to, I learned I hadn't encountered before, but evidently after, uh, when you try to light up the second stage, they refer to it uh, as the second engine lock-in or second stage engine lock-in or SELI. And so this seems to be a, a JAXA term that I found in other uh, H3 documents. And um, I think what we kind of had speculated before the show and kind of concluded was that this is just lock-in just means that you've managed to start up your engine and it's running at a steady you know, full thrust like it's supposed to. So kind of like unlike um, Relativity's uh, Terran 1, right? That second stage, I guess, didn't reach lock-in, right? Because it was kind of sputtering uh, for, mm, you know, okay. a good, you know, eight seconds or whatever and never was able mm. to reach full thrust. Uh, but apparently this uh, SELI uh, was confirmed uh, months ago when JAXA released their first sort of uh, – uh, the first stage of their failure analysis um, that this didn't happen. Evidently – well, there could have been speculation that maybe it was related to the second – well, it was related to the second stage engine not starting and was it the engine itself, which would be really worrisome because that's um, an LE5B – uh, three engine. So an LE-5B is the the one that's been flying on H-2A rockets before as their upper stage, and it's got heritage behind it and everything. And so it was kind of almost surprising. Um, the uh, the Dash 3 version of it basically is just higher performance. And this is one that I remember the three of us had talked about probably sometime last year of how incredible the performance is on this engine. Like it has a specific impulse of like 450 seconds. And so it's a really good engine. Um, but something uh, had happened and it did not light like it was supposed to. And so I guess, you know, uh, we got to give a, a shout out to Cosmic Penguin who had taken um, – who had translated a lot of uh, uh, what Jax's uh, press release, uh, or not their press release, but they, they had a PDF uh, uh, where they 
explain their fault tree analysis and how they tried to narrow down uh, what could have been responsible for this. And so Cosmic Penguin uh, had a thread where they were talking about the different, well, basically just translating what uh, JAXA's uh, investigation had concluded uh, so far. And the long story short is that they did get the signal, the, the engine did get the signal to start. And it sounds like there was a electrical issue where even trying to switch to like, you know, their second, you know, system B, like they had a little bit of redundancy built in, but even doing all this, they could not open the valves and actually start the engine, particularly the, the, the solenoid valves uh, that should be responsible for it um, seem to be the most likely point of failure right now. But they couldn't rule out other things too, because like all, all they know is that it got the signal for second engine ignition and that whatever happened electrically after that didn't result in these valves opening. And so it also could be that there was uh, you know, a short circuit somewhere else. It could be uh, the way they put it, something like a random cable harness breaking or a current miss cutoff uh, in the engine controller can't be ruled out. And so there's, it's, it's still unclear exactly what's the, the source, but I guess the new the update is that there was something that happened in the electronics after it got the signal to start that it wasn't able to open the valves. And so they're still kind of uh, trying to uh, figure it out. But they do have some leading candidates. So basically a short circuit um, or mis-earthing in the second stage's uh, engine. I mean, ultimately, the you know, the FTS was triggered <laughs> at T plus 836 seconds. So it was in the air for a good 13 minutes uh, before they finally, you know, blasted it in the... Uh, the Western Pacific, but um, and I and it didn't take forty seconds to trigger, so that was good. Uh, just a few seconds, like it's supposed to. But you know, until they have this figured out, this could have ramifications for the remaining. There's four H two A launches that they still want to uh, do, and uh, if, if if it could be an issue that's common to uh, those launch uh, those that, those vehicles as well, because they do also use an LE five B upper stage. And so uh, we'll see, I guess, what happens with that because H3 does have another mission planned for this year uh, where it's going to take another <laughs> another couple hundred million dollar uh, ALOS uh, satellite to orbit, hopefully. And I, I don't know. I just hope they can get it resolved and uh, get this uh, engine or get this vehicle going because I don't know about you guys, but I think the H3 is a beautiful looking rocket in particular. Um, I really like the way it looks. Yeah. And that's not nothing. <laughs> no, that's not, <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> so I guess those are our two launch failure analyses, and uh, mm. there'll be some more in the future once we know more. <laughs> I guess this is, this is not the end of the story. Yep. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what is the first? Hakuto R likely in freefall before loss of signal. Ice Space's Hakuto R lander failed to soft land on the lunar surface, which would have made the Japanese company the first private business to successfully land a spacecraft on the moon intact. After months of travel on a low energy trajectory, the vehicle entered lunar orbit last month, a milestone for a private company. However, iSpace lost communication with Hakuto R just before its scheduled touchdown, with some suggesting that it was likely in freefall before the loss of signal. While the lander and the UAC's Rashid 1 rover that tagged along are lost, the company said that they've still achieved many things from this mission and are moving forward with their second one. 
And then next up, China's space agency sets up a lunar-based organization. The China National Space Administration, or CNSA, announced that it will be setting up an organization to coordinate and manage the construction of its International Lunar Research Station, or the ILRS. China is currently negotiating cooperation agreements with 10 countries on the IRLS, with Venezuela said to be close to signing. The IRLS consists of five missions so far, which will establish nuclear energy, communications, astronomical observations, and other infrastructure to ultimately support crew on the lunar surface. And finally, Astrobotic books a second Falcon Heavy. Astrobotic's first three lunar lander missions have now been manifested. Peregrine is flying on the first Vulcan Centaur later this year. Griffin, carrying NASA's Viper rover, has been scheduled on a 2024 Falcon Heavy flight for a while now. This week, Astrobotic announced that a second Falcon Heavy has been purchased for the company's third mission, another Griffin. Unlike the first two missions, this Griffin is not part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program and doesn't have a disclosed customer as of this recording. However, Astrobotic says it will take up most of Falcon Heavy's capabilities and will offer cis-lunar satellite deployment opportunities. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and this one is a question. Uh, these are the ones I fear the most because <laughs> let's see if we can answer them. So this is in regards to Starship's abort ability or its ability to safely abort mm-hmm. uh, during some kind of an off-nominal launch. So Dennis, you took a look at this. Do you have any uh, response? Yeah. So and, and I have and, some thoughts, but I really don't have a good conclusion myself. And exactly. Similarly, I'm going to punt it off to someone else. But um, yeah, Bob had emailed us and uh, had asked, you know, how would... Uh, Starship deal with a situation where it couldn't separate from the booster section or some other anomaly that required the ship to be destroyed in flight. Uh, what procedure could be used to safely mo- remove the crew? And so the you know the, this question is about Starship and Super Heavy not really having a launch escape system. And I thought that was a great question. And Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, had an entire video uh, where the title is literally "Why won't Starship have an abort system? Should it?" And so this was uh, in 2019 that this video was there, and I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to mischaracterize it because I don't have the best memory. But I think ultimately, I mean, I, I, I actually disagreed with uh, with whether or not it should. I think it should have an abort system, um, especially if it's going to be taking that many people uh, to orbit, or it's aspiring to take you know large numbers of people to space. But um, ultimately, it's that launch escape systems haven't really been needed all that well. You know what I mean? Like most of the uh, tragedies that we've had uh, in spaceflight wouldn't have been solved by uh, a launch escape system. I think that's ultimately the argument. Um, And I apologize, uh, Tim, if I'm (laughs) misremembering it. But I think he does kind of systematically go through that kind of thing. And so I guess the idea is that you just create a vehicle that's so reliable, right? That wasn't his whole argument. It's also that, you know, Starship is going to be is designed to be built to be so reliable that you don't really need a separate launch escape system to you know pull the crew away during flight. And I've always been kind of upfront, I think, on the show that I'm a little bearish about Starship because of how complex and ambitious it is. And so I just don't know if that's really the way to go. But he is putting his... Uh, you know, he, he is what put it, he's not really putting his money where his mouth is, but he is, you know, willing to fly on a starship. <laughs> and so I got to say, you know, you know, definitely 
He's putting his life, yeah. Give <laughs> Tim Dodd credit for that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's putting his uh, his life where his mouth is, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, that's the, the best I got. But either way, we'll, that video, I think, will give you a better answer, Bob. And everyone else should check it out, too. Because it is an interesting video, like all of Tim Dodd's are. And I don't remember watching it, so I'm going to check it out myself. All right, so let's transition then over to this week in Spaceflight History. We have four winners. We have Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, Chris Bush, and The Greek. Uh, so congratulations. And I think everyone gets full credit because the clue was pretty self-explanatory, I suppose, once you know the answer. Uh, the clue was two score in 18 years and still going. So the two score in 18 years, that's a reference to the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. And the event was the launch of the Lincoln Calibration Sphere, or the LCS-1, because it is just one of four. So... Yeah, there's the tie-in with the clue, Lincoln. I feel, I feel like that was a kind of a corny clue, but I whatever. thought it, it was worked. fun. I really liked it, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So this event was on the 6th of May, 1965. That's when it launched. And I'll just say right out the gate, there's not a whole lot to say about this because uh, the Lincoln Calibration Sphere is the simplest, I think, spacecraft that's ever been launched ever, along with <laughs> uh, its companions. Um, I think it might actually take first prize for that i think uh we'll find out if anyone has you know like any other answers or any other suggestions as to what might be a simpler spacecraft so um so this was launched aboard a titan 3a and uh it was launched with another satellite which was uh the lincoln experimental satellite which was the lds2 um that one's a little bit more complex that actually had like you know electronics and stuff but this one didn't so uh just quickly there were like i said three other of these spheres that were constructed uh the second and third ones were lost in launch failures but the fourth one did make it to orbit in 1971 uh and it is still there to this day uh so like the first one the one that we're talking about um it is very long lived because it doesn't have to do much it just has to be there and as long as it exists it's doing its job which is <laughs> a very uh low bar to clear um so the titan 3a that was actually the primary mission was actually the rocket itself so i can see why maybe they didn't put very expensive payloads on board although this is you know back in 1965 i i mean yeah i suppose any payload would be somewhat expensive but but it was really just to test the trans stage which was the upper stage that was going to be used for the titan 3 um not the titan 3a and that's what launched but rather the titan 3 itself which uh i think had like 30 to 40 something different launches mm. so the specific goal was to perform four separate ignitions and burns so it had to successfully restart its engine four times once it did that uh then it could deploy the satellites and you know they could do their thing but the primary goal was actually that second stage or actually the upper stage i think it was the third stage overall yeah so the sphere uh which i'll get to the details of what it looks like in a second but it was deployed into orbit by a pinball mechanism i couldn't find any information on what that meant but i can totally see it because what we're talking about is a giant uh, metallic sphere looks just like a giant pinball and so it's just you know i imagine somebody just uh i don't know if they had a little you know like a little mechanical hand that pulls back on the lever and lets it go probably yeah. not i i love the idea of a hand but yeah i think you're I think you're probably on the right track that it's like a sprung plunger. Or it could be just like literally some padded little mechanism that just gives it a little bump. Mm. And that would be all that's needed because uh, there's no other attachment point. So it can't really – like you can't attach to the sphere. You can only 
kind of hold it in place because it doesn't have any uh, surface features to speak of. So it was put into a 2800 kilometer orbit, a fairly circular orbit. There was, you know, a little bit of eccentricity, but the idea was to keep it as circular as possible. Um, and this one was at a 32.1 degree inclination. And what's interesting is that the fourth one, which again is a separate mission like six years later, but that one was put into uh, an 87.5 degree inclination. I don't know why the big difference there. Um, I don't suppose it matters a whole lot given what it's uh, intended uses, but I just thought uh, that was interesting. Hmm. So it was constructed by Roar Core. Uh, never heard of that particular company, um, <laughs> but it was made for the MIT Lincoln Laboratory and hence the name. And the sphere itself is uh, 1.12 diameters, 1.12 meters in diameter. Um, and it's just a hollow aluminum sphere. Like that's literally it. It has a 3.2 millimeter wall thickness and it was constructed and I couldn't quite visualize how this works, but it was, there was sheet metal that was bent around two hemispheres that were then joined together to a circumferential hoop with 440 countersunk screws. So that part makes sense, but how you bend metal around a hemisphere, I don't know. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, the, the, the only thing it makes me think of is like spin forming. Mm. Might be. So what is that? Yeah, what is spin forming? Okay, so in spin forming, you're taking a circular sheet of metal and putting it on a lathe. So if you think about like putting two things on the lathe at the same time, uh, you get this circular disc of metal and then you get a mandrel that is like coaxial. Like So when the lathe spins up, this mandrel doesn't appear to rotate, right? Because it's like circularly symmetric and then um, a lot of the time this is done by hand um, and they'll have like where the the tool post would normally be or or if you think about like um like wood turning um on a lathe how you have like a, a tool rest that you can like put your chisel on and then you can like dig that chisel into the spinning wood and and carve it they kind of have the same thing except it's more like a skateboard wheel on a long arm. So you get this nice long lever so that you can push really hard and they start at the base of the mandrel and push the metal disc into the mandrel and they go the entire length of that mandrel until the disc is formed to the shape um, of the mandrel. And so like this is often done in more like aesthetic uh, situations like making uh, metal plates and bowls and things like that. But like, that would be the only thing I could think here, but they also could be doing like a, a press, like a, like a hydraulic press or something. I, I don't know what it would be, but I feel like there are probably a, a couple of different solutions that they could have used. So it says that the sphere was um, fabricated from certified 0, 1.25 inch 6061 aluminum stock. And then the stock was spun over a, and I think it says here, Kirk site mold or some kind of a mold. So, But it says it was spun over that mold. So that maybe uh, is a clue that that's, yeah, how it was made. Yeah. If it says spun, I think we can assume that it's being spun. It's a, it's a tough thing to do. I'm kind of surprised that this is the way they decided to do it. But then again, it's a hemisphere like there's not a lot of really good ways to do it yeah so once you have the molds and like i said they're joined to a circumferential if that's the right way to say that word ring uh, that runs on the interior surface of the thing and then you put all these little uh, screws in and then i imagine because you want this thing as smooth as possible the screws because they have to have some way of screwing them right they probably are a little bit 
larger than they need to be on the screw head, but then you just, you know, sand that off or cut that off and then you sand it down or then you polish it. Um, I suppose you're using many different uh, means of getting it, you know, like smoother and smoother as you polish it up. So I assume that that's how that's done because from the one photo that there is of this thing, I don't see any screws or anything like that. So it looks good. Of course, it might just not be in the shot, but you can't see any of that. It's just a big featureless ball. It's like a mirror ball. <laughs> but the surface of the sphere is then hand polished. And I think that that's the photo that we see. So yeah, there's just one photo. It's of a man standing next to it and he's got a little cloth and he's polishing it. Uh, looks like it's just, you know, like I guess like dusting it off or something. Uh -huh. um, and it's reflective enough that you can see the camera taking the photo of it. And it was polished down to, uh, I read 10 micrometers, which to me, a surface roughness of 10 micrometers I thought was not that reflective, but I guess it is. I don't have any tools at my disposal that tell me how, you know, reflective that is. So I'm just, you know, like Googling various images, but uh, it's reflective enough to actually be able to, you know, make out an image uh, pretty easily. So yeah, nice and shiny. Uh, now, like I said, it has a one, it has a 1.12 meter diameter, but the radar reflectivity, and that's what this is for, because um, I guess I haven't mentioned that, you know, this is back in the 1960s. And so when you're observing things with radar in space, you don't know what kind of atmospheric effects might be happening. So you need something that is a known reference, right? And this is a you know, something that we've talked about before with, you know, like different satellites. Um, in this case, the idea was to create a big featureless sphere. And a sphere is a very important shape because it doesn't matter the orientation. And with a 1.12 meter diameter, you get a one square meter radar cross section. And that doesn't change, you know, it doesn't, uh, it does not change depending on the orientation. Uh, it's just one big mirror. Um, <laughs> Sorry, real quick. Uh, talking about mirrors, um, I just looked up metal polishes real quick. And mm. this one company has got um, a series that is uh, 815 grit, 1500 grit, and then 2500 grit. And uh, the 1850, they say, has a top cut of 45 micrometers. Uh, 1500 is a tighter particle size, but it still has a top cut of 45 micrometers and their 2,500 they describe as a pet special polishing uh, alumina in this case with a very tight controlled top cut of less than 20 micrometers for high end finishing applications. So yeah, I mean, 20 micrometers is really, really tiny. And I think that's, if they're saying this is for high-end finishing applications, I think we can assume that this is not an illusion. This is a a very, very good mirror. Uh, maybe not optical, but mm -hmm. very, very good. I think it's, it's also worth noting that, I mean, the type of wavelengths that it's designed to be calibrating, 10 microns is like tens of thousands of times smaller than the wavelength. Right, yeah. So it's 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 a perfect, at least smooth surface as far as the, the radar is concerned. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing, yeah. But yeah, and so in order to uh, verify that baseline and if they need to, you know, make any further calibrations, they had some identical spheres which were constructed and then just kept on the ground for, you know, making measurements there. So, you, you know, like in order to measure any difference or disparity between what you get on the ground and then, you know, in orbit. Um, and that'll tell you a lot about the kinds of atmospheric effects 
that you might be looking at, which is pretty cool. So what did they shoot at this thing? Um, well, actually, probably a lot of things over the years because <laughs> it's still in orbit. So you can actually fire lasers at it, and that's a thing that you know occasionally is done. Uh, but for the purposes of the actual mission, um, they tested it with the L, S, C, X, and K microwave bands. So lots of different you know wavelengths. And that just lasted 11 months. So again, not terribly long. Um, it served its purpose, but you can still use it. I imagine like anyone, like anywhere in the world can use it if they want to. It's just they're free to, you know, fire radar at. Uh, now the reflectivity now does oscillate and it does so with a predictable pattern. So that probably means that something impacted it, you know, <laughs> uh, so mm -hmm. something probably hit it. So there's a little, you know, imperfection there, which is not surprising. It's been up there for quite a long time now. So I thought that was kind of neat. And yeah, like I said, the mission duration was just for uh, 11 months, uh, but it can be used for further calibration experiments because it's literally just a metal sphere. So in its projected, I read either 3,000 years and then I saw another website that said 30,000. I kind of feel like it doesn't matter. It's going to be up there for a long time. <laughs> um, it's, you know, about 2,800 kilometers so 3,000 sounds right, but maybe a lot longer. But uh, that's it's you know that's how long it's predicted to stay in orbit. The thing that I think uh, a couple of the guessers commented on was the fact that it is just technically the longest operating spacecraft. So it's still functional per its intended purpose, and it does take first place there because its intended purpose again is to just be reflective and in orbit, and that's not too hard to do. But Vanguard One, which was launched in 1958, so this was, you know, several years prior, that comes in second, but only because its full purpose was actually to transmit signals back to ground. And that was to make ionospheric measurements, but it stopped doing so pretty early on. But it is still currently tracked from the ground as a passive atmospheric measurement probe. So it's used for a different purpose, but it is still being used. So it would win uh, the, you know, longest functional spacecraft in that category. Like if you don't count its initial use, um, it still has some utility, but as far as being used for what it was supposed to be used for, Lincoln sat takes first place. So uh, <laughs> that's, it's a record holder there. And I think maybe also a record holder for being the simplest spacecraft ever put into space. Probably not the simplest object, obviously, because I don't know how you'd even, uh, qualify that. But as far as a full on spacecraft, I mean, it, technically is it doesn't do anything it's just a big ball but i don't think you can get much simpler than a big metal sphere so anyway yeah so that's it so not a whole lot to say about this old disco ball in space but uh that's it that's lincoln sat <laughs> lincoln sat one that is awesome well thank you david you managed to make a inner sphere on orbit very interesting so, <laughs> well ben next week is the 9th to the 15th of may do you have a clue for us I do. Uh, next week in 1998, the clue is around the elbow to get to the nose. Around the elbow to get to the nose. I, I'm at a loss. I have no idea. <laughs> Cryptic as ever. Be. Cryptic as ever. Yeah. If you think you uh, can can solve this uh, this mystery, uh, you can uh, either uh, send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF or uh, send in, submit your guests through Discord in our This Week SF channel. And uh, yeah, let us know what you got and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So let's move right along to upcoming spaceflight events. There are just three launches and then two other things happening on orbit, specifically the space station. So what is the first launch, though? Uh, first launch is an Electron uh, carrying Tropics 2, uh, which is 
the same launch as last week. They just got delayed uh, due to a storm coming in. So Tropics is currently planned to launch on Wednesday, May 3rd, uh, between 0100 hours UTC and 0300 hours UTC. And then next up, we have Russian Spacewalk 57, or VKD 57. And so very exciting. Uh, it was while I was traveling, so I missed it. But uh, they were able to go and grab that radiator that's been sitting on Rosvet for a decade or however long and bring it over to Nauka. And now it's time to go and grab the other thing that's been sitting on the side of Rosvet for ages, a uh, experimental airlock. Uh, I think it's called the Shaka or Shaka. I think is how you would say that in Russian. Um, the airlock, but yeah, but it's a little experimental airlock. So, you know, cosmonauts are not going to be going through there, but their experiments will kind of like you have in the, uh, the Japanese, uh, gem module. And so, uh, yeah, coverage of that will begin on NASA TV at 3.30 p.m. Eastern um, with the spacewalk itself to begin at 4.05 p.m. and will last approximately six hours. So good luck to them. And then after that, on the 4th, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5 Starlink, Starlink Group 5-6. So, yeah, just another batch of Starlink satellites and launching on the 4th of May from 0719 UTC through 1159 UTC. So, yeah, a big, long launch window. They're launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. So, yep, check that out if you want to. After that, we have another ISS event. This is the Crew-6 Dragon is being moved from the Zenith port of Harmony to the forward port of Harmony. The undocking is scheduled at 7.15 a.m. Eastern Time. The redocking is scheduled at 7.58 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, May 6th. Uh, coverage will begin at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on NASA TV. And then rounding us out, we have uh, another space station-related event, but not anything to do with the ISS. And so this is actually the Tianzhou 6 uh, launch uh, to the Chinese space station. So this will be the fifth cargo uh, mission. And so it'll be flying on a Long March 7, which I uh, had no idea. Did you know that the strap-on boosters for a Long March 7 are actually liquid boosters? They're not solids. Anytime I see a small white strap-on booster, I think it's always a solid. <laughs> I, th- I think maybe we discussed that at one point um, briefly. Yeah, the liquid strap-on boosters. Yeah, it's like a new thing, obviously. I think, yeah, just for Long March 7, right? Like this is a... Yeah, I think you're right. uh, The big next step, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, just a reminder for everyone out there then. (laughs) So uh, in any event, this is uh, slated to launch on Wednesday, May 10th with a window from 1320 UTC to 1341 UTC. And it will be flying out of Wenchang, which is the... You know, southern launch site that's uh, on the island, and it it's probably worth pointing out that not every Long March Seven has got uh, liquid. Some of them have solid boosters. All right, so those are your upcoming space flight events. All right, so with that, let's do about the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mr. Cesium, Citronaut 68, The Greek, Delta V with the Space, Mike Azakar, Chris Bush, Colin, and Jonesy for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, uh, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com so that's it we'll see you on next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you